If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. So, today's sermon, Coming Attractions 2, Did We Miss It? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at what is happening in the world today, particularly at the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we asked whether end times might be upon us and whether the return of Jesus is imminent. You might have thought by now this would be over, and yet it's still going, and that causes us to wonder. To try to answer this, then, we looked at the Olivet Discourse, the talk that Jesus gave to his apostles shortly before his crucifixion. When they asked him about the end of the age and his second coming, And Jesus responded with the most detailed chronological narrative we have of these things. We saw this summary of what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse. We saw that mainly there will be ongoing events like false teachers and various disasters and persecutions. These would be going on all the way from the time of Jesus until the end times. But we also saw that there would be a triggering event when the world is reached with the gospel. And this would be followed by the Great Tribulation and then into the end times events. There are some additional points that we did not have time to address, but should be addressed. Things that we might have touched on, mentioned in passing, but didn't go into detail. And besides that, there's what Jesus said right after the Olivet Discourse. So let's look at that now. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know, until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24, 32 to 44. is coming like a thief 
in the night. Now, one thing to know right away, of that day and hour, no one knows. And that's a point that Jesus emphasizes again and again. You do not know what hour your Lord is coming. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We don't know when it will happen. We cannot know precisely. And so there's no point really in spending the effort to try to figure it out. But we can know approximately. Okay? There are signs to look for. And once these signs are coming to pass, then we can know approximately. After all, he gave us this description for a reason. What do you think that reason is? That reason is, the reason is for you to be ready. So you will be ready. You know what's coming so you can prepare yourself to endure to the end and be saved. And so that you will live in such a way that you'll be fine whenever he comes. That's the most important thing to remember about end times. The most important thing to remember, the most important thing to do. And for sure, it's the most important thing to do. After all, every one of us, each and every one of us has an appointment with God. And that may be when Jesus returns. We might be here when that happens, we might see him coming down out of the clouds of heaven, but it may be before that for any one of us, especially the older you get. This particular movie, this lady was told by a messenger from the Lord, eight days, September 19th, 6.05 p.m., you're going to die. We don't know when that's going to be for any one of us. You need to be ready. There's another point to note in, in this follow-up to the Olivet Discourse that Jesus gave. He said this, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. They described what they were doing in those days, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So he's telling us those end times are going to be very much like the days of Noah and the flood. And what are the similarities? What are the similarities? One, they're going about their normal business, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Things are just always going to be the same. You don't have to worry about coming judgment. It's not about to come. So did they not know? What well, says did not know until the flood came and took them away? Does that mean they did not have warning? Well, God commanded Noah to build the ark. And at least the people around him must have noticed what he's doing and asked why. Um, Noah, why are you building this really, really big thing? Get all that wood from us, hiring laborers. Why? What's that for? It's going to be a nice big house for you, palace? Looks like a boat. Why? Right? Certainly some people must have noticed and asked him. How long did this take? How long did the people look at Noah building that thing and wonder? Well, we see in Genesis 5 that Noah was 500 years old. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence to them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Noah's 500 years old when he's told to build the ark. And then... When does the flood come in the 600th year of Noah's life? 
So a hundred years or so, he was building that thing. A hundred years, people could have looked and said, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? What was no doing in all that time? hundred years. It's a long time. It's longer than I've been alive. And that's a long time, folks. What was he doing besides building the ark? Well, we see this in 2 Peter 2. Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. He was preaching to the people. He was telling them about righteousness, about judgment, about what's coming, about what they need to do. He was warning the people. And while he was doing that, what's God doing? He is being patient. He waited patiently for a century. What's interesting thing about the ark, if you read the dimensions of the ark, and you look at a very detailed study of what the ark would have had to hold to survive with all those animals for all that time. Very detailed when you start to think about it. You have to account for things like food, of course. What are the animals going to eat? What about waste disposal? Those animals, for all that time, they're going to be making a lot of stuff coming out the other end. What are you going to do with that? What about things like, like noxious fumes building up because of that? And so on. There's a lot of things to look into. And it's been done. One particular good book on it by John Woodmore called Noah's Ark of Feasibility Study covers all this. But the point I want to make and draw your attention to is when the ark departed or started to float as the waters came up, it was 43% filled. 57% of the interior volume of the ark was empty. You know why? Because there's a lot of room for anybody who would take Noah's warning and say, I want to come. It was there for a hundred years. God was inviting the people through Noah, be saved. Come into the ark. hundred years. And at the end of hundred years, who went? Noah and his family. That was it. The people were too busy, too uninterested in the things of God. Just eating, drinking, marrying, giving a marriage, going about the ordinary things of life. And they just ignored the warnings. And how is that like today? Well, if they're responding exactly the same way, aren't they? How did people in Noah's day respond to the warning of God's coming judgment? Same way they're responding today. So what else? What else do we see in this follow-up addendum from Jesus? We see this. Now, this is something that's troubled a lot of people. It says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things have taken place. And people look at that and they're surprised. They say, hmm, what is a generation? Well, when we see the word in English, we take it to mean this. The whole body of people born and living at about the same time. That's what you, that's what you think when you hear the word generation, isn't it? And so people think, wait a minute. Jesus is talking to these people and saying, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. It means the people he's talking to still have to be living when these things happen. But they're not living. That was first century. They were long since dead. They're dead for almost 2,000 years now. Did Jesus get it wrong? He's speaking in the year 33. That generation could only last so long. The last ones must have died out by, say, about the year 100. But these things didn't happen. How do we avoid Jesus being wrong about this? 
And some Christians opt for something called preterism. What is preterism? Preterism is the idea that since the events of the Olivet Discourse had to happen before that generation to whom Jesus was speaking passed away, it must have happened. It must have happened in the first century. And there's an obvious choice within the first century, somewhere between the year 33 and the year 100, a period of tribulation and judgment. What would that be? The destruction of Jerusalem. Destruction of the Jerusalem after the Jews rose up in rebellion against the Roman overlords in the year 66. And it pretty much came to end when the Romans finally penetrated the walls of Jerusalem, crushed it, destroyed the temple. Not one stone was left upon another. And people killed and deported. So that, they think, is a good fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. It's like this. They claim that it explains this problem of Matthew 24, 34, about this generation. But it seems to raise a bigger problem, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Isn't the whole point of the Olive Discourse to tell us when Jesus will return? Did he come back in the year 70? And that's what the, the disciples were asking him about. They said, what is the sign of your coming? That's what Jesus was answering. Direct response to this. And the kind of things he said, look at this. Immediately after the great tribulation, immediately after, not 2,000 years after, immediately after, Jesus will return and everyone, all the tribes of the earth shall see him. So there's no secret second coming before us we discussed last time. There will be the gathering of all the believers from all over the world. And no such thing happened in the first century, not in AD 70 or at any other time. Jesus did not return. The entire earth did not see him. He did not gather all believers together. So how can you say that Jesus was talking about AD 70? What can preterists do about this? Well, they go one of three ways. One is to claim, funnily enough, that, yeah, Jesus did return in AD 70, you know, just as the Romans were besieging Jerusalem. They appeal to this passage written by Josephus, the well-known first century Jewish historian. He says, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds. It's probably the smoke of the fires from all the burning buildings. But I say, oh, no, see, see, <laughs> that's Jesus. Yep, yep, he, he did return. And, and then... Is the passage. This is how they build it. Armies of angels reporting the skies above Jerusalem. That's the armies of angels. See the word angel in there? I don't know. You? And then they will go to Tacitus, the Roman historian, writing much later and saying, ah, there'd been seen hosts joining battle in the skies. Hosts. Again, what's the word you don't see there? Angels. What's the most important thing you don't see? Which word? They're Jesus. Remember? This is supposed to be the return of Jesus. All the world will see him. All the tribes of the earth will see the son of man coming. Did that happen in AD 70? No. Could that be the fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse? No. <laughs> the, the one thing, the one sine qua non is Jesus has to be there visibly. So the second gambit then of the preterists is to go this route. Go this route. It's metaphorical. 
it's just metaphorical. When, when Jesus is telling them that, what's the sign of the end times? When are you coming back? Ooh, I'm not really telling you, you know, I'm just going to give you a little some metaphorical description of the destruction of Jerusalem, which you didn't ask about. You asked about my actual return. I'm not talking about that. It's just metaphorical. Details about it. They're supposed to understand, of course, that they didn't, re that he didn't really mean that. It was all just you know, metaphorical. And they're supposed to understand that he didn't answer their question. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't think that's a good explanation either. The third gambit then is to move to what they call partial preterism. And the way partial preterism goes is this. There is an actual second coming of Jesus, you see. Jesus will return and the whole world will see him. And yes, he will gather his elect. And yes, that's still in the future. The Olivet Discourse is not about that at all. It's all only about the destruction of Jerusalem. So, so we'll split it. What problems do you see with that attempted explanation? Well, immediately after the tribulation, Jesus comes back, gathers his, for, his elect from the four winds. And then he says, after that, I say to this generation will by no means pass away until these things take place. So the generation he's talking about is the one that sees him coming back, not the one that sees the destruction of Jerusalem. So the preterist dodges don't work. So are we stuck here? Was Jesus wrong when he said this? Well, interestingly enough, C.S. Lewis, that very popular apologist and author of the Narnia series, he thought, yeah, he thought Jesus made an embarrassing mistake here. You didn't know that, did you? Did you really? Well, the answer comes down to this, okay? One, one more dodge they have. When Jesus says, this generation will by no means pass away, what he really means is that the generation that's alive at the time the events start happening, that's the generation he's talking about. You know, which, is, which, is, which is possible, although I'd be happier if he'd said that generation instead of this generation, because this does seem to be the one he's talking to. Is there an actual solution? Well, yes, there is. As usual, it comes by looking at the original Greek. Genea, the word translates generation. What does it mean? Does it mean the whole body of people born and living about the same time? Does it mean that thing that instantly pops into your head when you hear the word in English? Well, let's see. Here from uh, BDAG, the industry standard Greek lexicon. Look at number, meaning number one. Those exhibiting common characteristics or interests, race, kind. That's the first meaning of Ghana. Now, it could mean those all together at the same time, because that is the second meaning. But it doesn't have to mean that. It could mean those exhibiting characteristics or interests, race or kind. And in point of fact, when you look at the, the Bible, the New Testament, you'll see a lot of places where this word generation shows up, where it can't possibly be referring to all the people born and living at the same time. Examples like these, these are just some. He answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Is everybody living at that time were evil and adulterous? There were no good people? Not his apostles? Not John the Baptist? When Jesus said there's no one greater of those born of one, no one greater than he. They're all evil and adulterous, none of them got a sign. Well, we know that's not true. But if, if generation refers to those people joined by that common characteristic of being evil and adulterous, then it makes perfect sense. Luke 9, 41, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Again, every single person living at that time, 
was evil? No. Luke 16, 8, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Again, is it just people born at the same time or those characterized by that, that type of attribute. Luke 17, 25, you must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Again, did everybody in that generation reject Jesus? Absolutely not. Read through the book of Acts. What happens? 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, up to 5,000 a couple of days later. More and more, they lose count. So it cannot be here referring to all the people born and living at the same time. These are just some examples from the New Testament. It must be referring to those exhibiting common characteristics. Like, yeah, yes, it's a problem. See, in English, it doesn't mean that. In English, it's all the people living together. That's why that's what you heard, thought when you heard it, right? Doesn't mean that. Yes, it does. Okay, let's go back to our Oxford English Dictionary, the standard English language. I showed you this before. The whole body of people born and living about the same time. Again, that's the second meaning. There's the first meaning in English. Family, race, stock, a class, or kind of people. There you go. That's the first meaning even in English. So there you go. There's not the problem. Okay. What he's saying here is that the Jewish people, this type, this race, will not cease to exist as a distinct people group until the second coming. And we don't even think about that because we don't think how significant that is. Think of all the different nations, even empires in the Bible. How many of them are left today? Show me a Canaanite today. Show me a Hittite. You can't do it. Show me a Babylonian, an Assyrian, even the Romans. You know, you think, wow, let's go to Italy. You'll see Romans. They won't. Most of those people are descendants of the Gauls and Lombards who invaded the Italian peninsula and subsumed the Romans. That's a big thing to say, yeah, you're going to be thrown out of your land. For 2,000 years, you're still going to be there as a distinct people group. Name me one other people group that ever had that happen. That's what he's saying here. It seems that's what he's saying here. So there's no need for preterism. No, we have not missed the second coming. It is still ahead of us. A few other things to note from Jesus' addendum. We mentioned this last time. Many Christians believe there will be this so-called rapture, which they take to be a secret pre-second coming, second coming, where Jesus will come secretly and the world will not see him. And he's going to snatch up all the believers into heaven with him. And then we'll be sitting there with ringside seats, watching that tribulation and watching all the trouble going on down there. Why? Because, you know, Christians, we don't have to undergo tribulation. You know, that, that just mean, mean, mean. Why would we have to go through trouble? <laughs> Insulting the Christians in most parts of the world today are going through terrible trouble. Now, we showed last time that that's an unjustified idea. But here's a couple of other points out of Jesus' end time addendum here. A couple of other points to note. Then there will be great tribulation. Then... False Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Deceive, if possible, even the elect. Well, that means that there have to be Christians there after the tribulation starts, doesn't it? Kind of all being snatched away. There's a very encouraging detail as well. If we look at this. Another encouraging detail that does show that Christians won't all be snatched away. This is in Luke's account. Okay, he's talking about the tribulation. And he says, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. We've talked previously about the fact that even when disaster comes, 
God is able to deliver his own people, even in the face of terrible destruction, terrible judgment. So people have this idea about this great tribulation, this horrible thing that, you know, oh no, it's, it's, it's you know, a, a zero something. Either we're all snatched up beforehand or we stay here and we suffer terrible tribulation and we forget we forget that God is able to deliver his people, even in the midst of, of terrible persecution, tribulation. And that even applies to the great tribulation. There's Jesus' words right there. Pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. Yes, some Christians who are here, even during the great tribulation, will escape. It will not hit them. If you understand that, you don't have to be so eager to think, yep, yep, God's going to snatch us all up beforehand. We're not going to have to suffer. You were in it for the duration. Jesus makes that clear. But you may be kind of worthy to escape all these things. The idea that God won't allow his people to face tribulation is, is just silly. If you read the Bible, I mean, look, look at First Thessalonians 3, 2 to 4, for example. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. He's concerned about their faith. He says, and tells them, no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. So on the one hand, you have Christians saying, oh, no, God wouldn't let us people face tribulation. And the Bible tells us we're appointed to that. We're appointed to that. There's no guarantee that you will not face tribulation in your life as a Christian. Anything more likely you will. If you're living the way he wants you to live. If you're not facing any trouble in your life, nobody's giving you grief over being Christian. Nobody at all. We're probably doing something seriously wrong, folks. Think about it. It's also in Thessalonians where Paul writes that the, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will face tribulation, will face persecution. Nobody's bugging you. You're living the way the world likes. Think about it. So, again, no, uh, no secret pre-tribulation rapture. Christians will be here till the end, but the flip side is some may escape. I don't know about you. But I'm happy about this. <laughs> I, I like the idea that we might get to escape. And finally, this out of the addendum, thing Jesus said after the, the body of the text. We've seen this before of that day and hour. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. You might ask, why doesn't he tell us? Wouldn't it be nice to know when he's going to come? Inquiring minds want to know. And believe me, through the years, an awful lot of time has been spent and detailed inquiries in the book of Revelation, book of Daniel, book of Ezekiel, trying to figure out, spilling an awful lot of ink, and some people making a lot of money from writing books about it. But the reality is there's no point because there's no way to know. Why not? I'm reminded of a little joke from an old comedy show called Dave Allen at Large. It's quite funny. It's very short. It's one fine morning in the Vatican. Things are going as normally. Suddenly a priest comes running up to the Pope. He's all excited. He's flustered. He's shouting. It's happening. It's happening. Jesus is returning. The second coming is here. What should we do? The Pope says to him, look busy. Now think about that. That is human nature, folks. What if we did know? What if we knew, oh, it's not going to be in our lifetime? What if we knew it's going to be 100 years now? What if we knew it's going to be 10? We're not going to be busy until the last moment. We're going to think we got lots of time. 
Yeah, lots of time. Where's going to be the urgency if we know it's not going to happen for 50 years? Some of you will still be here in 50 years. Some of us won't. Right? So why? That's human nature, folks. I think that's why we are not told. This is why we don't know. Because that thing that Jesus said, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that they come upon you unexpectedly. So easy to get weighed down with the cares of this life. Put off the things of God. Remember the parable of the rich fool who wants to accumulate enough money to make sure he's going to be secure for his whole life. Accumulates so much that his barns can't hold it all. Says, you know what? I'm going to tear down these barns and build bigger ones. And he does that. And he fills those barns and finally thinks, okay, now I've got enough. He tells him, okay, I'm going to take it easy now. Maybe now he could start focusing on things of God. And he's told that night, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then it's going to be too late to store up any treasure in heaven. I think if we knew, sorry, we would slack off and not to laugh us. We know it's far off. We would not be doing what we should do. We would be planning to do it at the last minute, wait until you see him coming back and then look busy. I think it's better if we don't know. It's probably time to stop trying to figure out when it's going to happen. We should look at the signs. We should notice the signs. But really, we should be concentrating on living in such a way that we will be ready. We will not be ashamed whenever it comes for us. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.